Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, again, we ask that your Spirit would be poured out upon us and that by that very Spirit, your Word would be enlivened in our hearts and our minds. That by this Word we have heard this day, we would be renewed. That we would be changed. That we would be transformed into the likeness of Christ. That we would know Him more deeply. And through Him, know You more deeply, O Father. So guide us this day and plant these words deep in our hearts forever that we would follow after Him who has gone before us, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we pray. Amen. So this day is the last Sunday of the Epiphany. The last Sunday after the Epiphany, some might say. And on this day, we draw in and look at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, this is not the Feast of the Transfiguration. You might ask, there's a separate day for that? Is this not the same thing? I used to think it was, that this was considered the Feast of the Transfiguration. But on the calendars, that actually happens in August. On August 6th, the Feast of the, Tra the, feast of the Transfiguration happens. But yet, in revisions that have occurred over the years, they decided to add this day to the end of Epiphany, this recognition of the Epiphany this recognition of the transfiguration, that this is the transfiguration Sunday, that we step back and we hear, and why would we hear about such a day when we already have another feast day? Well, that feast day just occurs on August 6th, so not everyone gets to have a worship service on August 6th. And so by transferring or moving this day and having a day observing and recognizing the transfiguration, it gives us an opportunity to hear it and then to put it into a slightly different context because we're in the context of epiphany. And so we're being drawn toward the manifestation of Jesus to his people because that's what epiphany is all about. Jesus revealing himself, whether through miracles, through teaching, through glorious acts on his part, controlling the weather, controlling the world. He reveals himself as the Messiah, and not just as the Messiah, but as the true Son of God, the Divine One, the second person of the Trinity manifested in human flesh, taking on flesh, being one of us and yet being our Lord and our God. All of Epiphany is continually pointing us to that fact that Jesus is not only a man, but that he is the Divine Son of God the eternally begotten Son of the Father, God from God and light from light, true God of true God. And the transfiguration is the penultimate recognition of that. I say it's the penultimate, meaning that it is the second to the greatest. Because the greatest moment of Christ's glory being revealed, of Him manifesting who He is, I think can be found on the cross, for that is what the Gospel of St. John continually points us toward. The cross is the ultimate place of the revelation of God's glory, hidden in the sacrifice of Christ, hidden there, Christ dying for the sins of the world. And the transfiguration points toward that at the end of the day. The transfiguration is not in and of itself an isolated manifestation of the glory of Jesus. 
but is part and parcel and connected ultimately to that crucifixion of Christ, to that ultimate revelation, to that work of Christ to bring about the forgiveness of sins for all of his people. And what we realize is that with the transfiguration, it all goes back to Jesus. That we are left with only Jesus, with Jesus alone for our salvation. The transfiguration directs our eyes not to the law and to the prophets. It doesn't direct our eyes to our own self-sufficiency. But just as we hear in verse 8, here in a little bit, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Likewise, we are to see no one but Jesus only as we turn to the Father, as we turn for salvation, as we turn from our own ways. It is ultimately that we look to Jesus only. And in light of that, we recognize that whatever glory there is, all the glory points us only to Jesus. And so what do we see here this day in this passage? We see Jesus took James and John and Peter up a mountain. We don't know what mountain it was they went up on, but it was a high mountain. It was an isolated mountain. And there he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. The glory points us only to Jesus. For how does Matthew describe it here? He says his face shone like the sun. His face was shining like the sun. He wasn't reflecting the sun. He wasn't reflecting glory, but it was shining out of him. I always think of Moses as we just heard about him going up onto the mountain and being in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights to receive the law, to receive the written tablets. And when Moses came down from the mountain, and any time he visited with God, his face would shine. He would reflect the glory that he had been in. It wasn't coming out of Moses, though. It was a reflection, as though he was like a solar battery that had absorbed some of that glory, and it had to be put forward to the people. It wasn't emanating from within himself, but it was something he had received from God as he was in his presence. But here, Jesus is transfigured, and it comes out of him. It shines through that human nature, this gloriousness of his very divine nature, coming forth and being shown to his disciples. And even his clothes became white as light, that it penetrated even the very clothing he is wearing, shining forth, shining out. The glory drawing the disciples' eyes directly upon Jesus. And that is where our eyes are to point, to look toward Jesus, the glory. The greatness of all of that points us to Christ. Not to his power, not to any great and glorious manifestations of that power, but simply to him alone. And that's where we have to continually check ourselves. That we can thank and celebrate all the good things that we see all around us when we see God working. But we want to make sure that as we see those good things that God is doing, that we are then turning and looking and paying attention to Jesus, that we are paying attention to God himself in all of that. That we don't get caught up and focused on miracles or great and wonderful things that are happening and talk only of those things, but to continually then jump from those back to Jesus, just as these disciples are seeing this manifested glory of God, this manifested glory of Jesus himself as the Son of God. Their eyes are intended to look back to Jesus.
What's amazing about the passage that we just read from the book of Exodus this day is that we have Moses going into the very presence of God. But what we miss out on, because of where the passage starts, if it started a few verses earlier, we would hear of Moses writing down the covenant that he has heard from God, that the people have heard, the Ten Commandments and all the laws that follow that from chapter 20 to chapter 23, and then the confirmation of the covenant by the people, and a sacrifice being made and that blood being thrown against the altar, and then thrown upon the people as their sins are washed away and they are confirmed in the covenant to follow after it. And then God calls Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, Abihu and the 70 elders to come into his presence on the side of the mountain. And they saw God, it says in Exodus 24.10. And they ate in his presence. And so they saw God and ate in his presence after they had received forgiveness and that's the ripple effect of all that Jesus is going to do. For God does say, no man can see me face to face, lest he will die. And yet here are these men in God's presence, in his glory, in an aspect of his manifested glory before them. And yet by God's grace, they do not die, but they are able to sit in his presence and eat and drink and celebrate the covenant, celebrate the work of God. And their eyes are pointed to what God is accomplishing for them through their forgiveness, being in his presence, something that they couldn't have on their own. And then God goes a step further. Yahweh calls Moses himself on up to the top of the mountain where he will receive the covenant written on stone tablets by God's very finger. And so Moses went up and he stayed on that mountain 40 days and 40 nights because of the grace of God because of the grace of Christ who is to come. For Christ's sacrifice ripples back into the past such that those who only have animals to cover their sins can be forgiven. That Jesus' sacrifice goes backwards in time to enable these men at the founding and the confirmation of the covenant to enter into God's presence, to enter into that glorious presence into that graceful presence and dine with God to eat and drink before him. And as the glory points us only to Jesus, as we see that scene in Exodus of these men coming into that presence after a glorious sacrifice on their behalf, we then see also that the law and the prophets point only to Jesus. For who shows up at this transfiguration? It is the representatives of the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah come. And they are there with Jesus speaking to him. They come and they're gathered around him. And we don't know how the disciples knew who they were, how they could recognize them. But yet they do. And they know what the law, what Moses and Elijah ultimately represent. They are representatives of all of the written scriptures for them. Moses, the lawgiver, the one through whom God brought the law. And Elijah, the preeminent prophet who prophesied and spoke against one of the most wicked kings in Israel and against his wife, who upheld the law and called the people to repentance continually over and over. Though Elijah wrote nothing in the Old Testament, he is yet the representative of that, for he exuded the power of God to the people. He exuded the words of God to point the people back to the law and through that law to point them back to God himself. And here they appear flanking Jesus, standing on either side of him, 
talking to him. And we don't know what they're talking about. But we know that they are pointing only to Jesus in this regard. For that is what all the writings of the Old Testament do for us. We learned that at the end of the Gospel of St. Luke. There in chapter 24 when Jesus is with the disciples on the way to Emmaus. He opens up the entirety of the scriptures, the Old Testament to them, pointing out how everything was directing them to understand that the Messiah was to suffer and die on behalf of the people and then to be raised back to life, to be raised into glory, to be raised up in new resurrection life. And thus all of the law and the prophets are to point only to Jesus. They direct our eyes directly at him. But then, of course, Peter has to go and talk, doesn't he? He has to say something. He can't sit there in absolute silence. When something shocking happens for Peter, he has to speak. He has to process it. And so he says, Lord, it's good that we are here. That's good. He recognizes he should be there, that it's good that Jesus invited them to see this. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter begins speaking, and he wants to make tents for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. He wants to make a temporary shelter for them. Some have pointed out that maybe this is happening during the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, that time when the people are called to go out and to build temporary shelters to remind them of their wandering days in the desert, of their wilderness journey when they were not allowed to enter into the land. To remind them to look for that greater fulfillment of God's promises that yes, they are moving toward the land. And they're remembering that movement of the people toward the land, but that there is a greater coming of the Messiah, the greater coming of, the, of God himself to restore all things, and that they are looking for that greater fulfillment. By recognizing the temporality of this world, the temporality of their own lives, the lack of permanence that there is upon this earth. And maybe it is that Peter has that in mind because it is in the midst of that festival that they are drawn up onto this mountain. But whether it's that or just simply Peter thinking, let's set up tabernacles, let me make tabernacles for you. There's a sense of him wanting to prolong this moment, but there's also a sense of which he's not picking up on what's going on. He wants to make tabernacles for all three of them. He wants to put Moses and Elijah on par with Jesus himself. He wants to establish them alongside Jesus. But that's not how it works because they point us to Jesus. They are not themselves salvific in and of themselves. Their words are only salvific in and as much as they point toward Christ himself for us. But nothing is even said. There is no answer given to Peter. For as soon as he <clears throat> said that, and was continuing to speak, not able to keep quiet. Behold, a cloud overshadowed them. A bright cloud came upon them. And there is the Father coming down, overshadowing Moses and Elijah and Jesus, covering them with his glory. So not only is Jesus himself shining forth his own divine glory, the glory that belongs to the Son, but now the Father comes down and pours his glory upon him covering him up. Just as the glory cloud descended upon the tabernacle in the Old Testament, just as it descended upon the temple itself at its dedication, 
And here the glory cloud comes and descends upon Jesus, reminding us that He is the true tabernacle. He is the true temple. He is the ultimate dwelling that the Feast of Tabernacles was referring to. That the tabernacle and the temple were but temporary things that had no permanence in the long run. Because they were to point us to the great place where God Himself would dwell, and that was the man, Jesus Christ. For how can God not but dwell in Him? For He is God Himself in the flesh. And so the glory cloud descends upon that one who is the true temple for us, the one in whom we find the Father, the one in whom we find our God. And what does the voice say that comes out of this cloud? It says, This is my well-beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The very words spoken at Jesus' baptism, that Jesus was baptized and the Father spoke those words. But the Father adds something more to it this time. He says, listen to Him. Hear Him. Pay attention to what He tells you to do. My well-beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, listen to Him. And when the disciples heard that, they fell upon their faces. And they were terrified. But then Jesus steps forward and He touches them. And tells them to rise and do not fear. Do not be afraid. And so only Jesus stands before us as the way. We listen to Him because He is our salvation. We listen to Him because He is the one who has come from God. The one who descended from heaven to earth through the womb of Mary. The true Son of God. And so He stands before us as the way. Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And that is how the law and the prophets point to Christ right there. Is when the glory cloud comes and overshadows Jesus, they fade into the background, for they have accomplished pointing us to Jesus, and the Father is recognizing Jesus. And when the Father ascends back up, it is only Jesus. The law and the prophets are no longer there, but Jesus only, for they point to Him. And He stands before us as the one way to the Father the one who will accomplish salvation on our behalf, the one who will do all things well. And we listen to Jesus by hearing His voice, by hearing His voice through His Word and by His Word. One of the things that I love as I was looking at Peter's recollection of this this week and looking at some commentaries and listening to some commentaries on this passage over in 2 Peter chapter 1, he recalls, this moment. He says, We were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty. For when He received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. Here Peter is recalling that very event of hearing the Father speak on that holy mountain. But notice what he leaves out. He doesn't mention the part where the Father then says, listen to Him. He merely says, the voice said, my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And you think, is He forgetting what the Father said about listening to Jesus? But what's so glorious is that St. Peter then goes on to say, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the, dawn, the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 
St. Peter points us to Scripture itself as the fulfillment of that listen to Jesus, that they have received the prophetic word, and it's more confirming to us now than even Peter's vision of Jesus, Peter being with Jesus there on the mountain. For that word remains with us. That was but a moment of Jesus being on the mountain, being glorified, being transfigured, revealing his divine nature to his disciples. But the prophetic word remains with us now. The old, the old and New Testaments which reveal to us Jesus, which tell us of Jesus, is the place where now we can see Jesus standing before us. The scripture points us to Christ himself. And that is how we know him, is through these words that St. Peter gave us, that St. Paul gave us, that St. John gave us, that all the writers of the New Testament gave us, and all the writers of the Old Testament. And all of it points us, not to the law, not to the prophets, but to the preeminent one, Jesus himself, our Lord and Savior, who takes away our sins, who takes away our fear, who gives us strength to rise and stand before him, who continually calls us to himself. That Jesus is the way of our salvation. That we are united to Him and Him alone for our Savior. And so thus we look to Him continually as we hear the Word, as we hear the Law and the Prophets. And as that Word convicts us, as that Word reveals to us our sinfulness, it also gives to us and tells us of the promises of God Himself. And that all those promises are fulfilled in our yes and amen in Christ. That is where we find our salvation is in only Jesus. By Jesus alone are we saved. And so this day we don't look at the great and glorious things all around us. We celebrate and rejoice in those things, but always letting them direct our eyes back to Jesus. Directing our eyes back to that one who died upon the cross. That one who when he returns will bear the marks of our salvation upon his physical body who will have scars across his forehead, who will have scars upon his hands and his side and his feet. But we will rejoice in seeing that Jesus marred for us in his physical body, but raised from the dead in a glorious new kind of life and a new strength that we cannot understand and that we will partake of that very life that Jesus has won for us as we look to him, as we draw near to him, as we know him. We are enabled to walk through this world of suffering, this world of troubles, this world of sorrow. For Jesus has paved the way before us. He has cut the path before us, and so we stand in Him alone. For it is to Him alone that we look, to Him alone that we draw near, to Him alone that we know as our Savior. For He is our God, and He is our Lord. And only in Jesus do we find the joy of salvation itself. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.